Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Over the last several weeks, there's been a lot going on internationally from a geopolitical standpoint, primarily with Russia's invasion into Ukraine. And right around the same time that that happened, I started to receive several reports from e-commerce merchants and fintech companies that they saw a dramatic spike in account takeovers targeting digital currency, whether that's electronic gift cards, cryptos, digital wallets, etc. And over the last several weeks, we've seen fraud attempts from Eastern Europe, primarily the Russian Federation, go up significantly. Now, you may not see that they're from Russia because they may be using proxies and emulators and all of that, but a lot of the MO is very similar. And because of that, I wanted to interview Robert. He, prior to being at Q6, he was with the U.S. Secret Service for over 25 years. And he explains in this interview why the Secret Service oversees financial and cyber crimes and, and kind of what his role was. And he did a lot within his time. Honestly, we could have had like three episodes on just his career alone. But one of the positions that really interested me the most was that one point in his career was stationed out of Washington, D.C., and he was the foremost expert for the Secret Service on Eastern European financial and cyber crimes. He learned so much about how they work, what their preferred methods are, how the organizations are structured, how malware is created, and, and how they're really focusing on credentials and account takeover and just all the different pieces of the puzzle. And I thought it'd be really of interest just in general, as well as because Western companies are starting to see a spike in online fraud attempts. And I don't think that's going away anytime soon. I don't think Robert does either, as well as malware attacks, ransomware, the things that that part of the world is, is really good at. So before we dive in too much, I just want to say that my heart is with Ukraine and I almost feel insensitive just focusing on the financial fraud aspect coming out of Russia. But because of the sanctions that have been put on their country, I think that that's why we're seeing a lot of this. But also Robert talks about how Financial criminals and organized crime often like to take advantage of political unrest to commit more crime, kind of during the fog of war, so to speak. So I'm certainly not trying to discount all of just the horrific pain and grief that is coming out of that area, but this is a fraud-focused podcast, and so we are going to talk about the impact of all of this on financial fraud, especially targeting e-commerce and fintech. So a little bit about Robert before we dive into the interview. He currently leads the Cyber Threat Intelligence Department at Q6. But as I mentioned, prior to joining Q6, he had 25 years of dedicated service in the United States Secret Service, where he specialized in transnational cyber crimes, access device fraud, network intrusions, and identity theft data bre breaches affecting the private sector. During his tenure, Robert was assigned to various offices, including Miami, Europe, Latin America, and Washington, D.C. 
and served in both investigative and undercover capacities around the world. Robert founded the U.S. Secret Service Cyber Intelligence Section, which coordinates global cyber operations. And we talked a little bit about on that on the interview. That is so impressive and really, really cool what he was able to help found and what it does now. Additionally, Mr. Villanueva also headed the U.S. Secret Service's Miami Electronic Crimes Task Force, which counts 800 plus members from the private sector, academia, and the local and federal law enforcement. He's conducted extensive research on computer botnets and malware development attributed to foreign actors. He has led numerous projects for the U.S. Secret Service in partnership with Stanford University, Carnegie Mellon University, and various private sector companies. Pretty much what that bio is saying is that he's a badass. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> so in this interview, we talked about his extensive experience in the Secret Service, his deep expertise in Eastern European cyber fraud, the various players and types of fraud and malware that often originates in the Russian Federation, and just overall Eastern European fraud and bad actors what methods and tactics they're currently using and why they see political unrest as an opportunity to steal more money, why account takeovers have become more sophisticated and what can be done to prevent them. And then he ended with some really great advice for e-commerce and fintech companies to help them be more proactive against bad actors, especially those targeting Western countries and Western companies for financial gain. With that, I am going to let you listen in on my interview with Robert Villanueva from Q6 Cyber. I really appreciated his time and information and hope you do too. Welcome back to the Fraudology Podcast. I am grateful to have Robert Villanueva with us from Q6 Cyber. And as I mentioned previously in the intro, Robert is the best expert to talk about, from my perspective, the best expert I know to talk about what's going on in Eastern Europe right now and its impact on online fraud. So Robert, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Chris. Absolutely. You know, we had your CEO, Ellie Dominance, on Fraudology about a year ago, talking about new ETO methods using malware. And I really have come to rely on you and your team for some inside information on fraud. And I really appreciate you being willing to share your insights on this specific topic, as it's something that is coming up more and more in addition to everything else going on in the world between Russia and Ukraine. Yes, of course. My pleasure. So before joining QSEX as their EVP, you had a very impressive career with the U.S. Secret Service for 25 years. I know we could talk about that career for hours and I wouldn't mind that at all, but what are some of your most memorable cases and or accomplishments? Well, yes, first of all, it was a great career. The United States Secret Service is, in my opinion, one of the best federal agencies in the U.S. government. I enjoyed each and every moment I was there. In the knowledge and experience I gained as a young man helped me develop to the specialty area where I'm at now. So at the Secret Service is a dual mission agency, right? Primarily known for the dark shade glasses and earpieces <laughs> and protecting the presidents and foreign heads of states. But it's a dual mission agency, like I mentioned, and you're trained also in investigative tactics, mainly the, for the counterfeiting of the U.S. financial infrastructure, 
or anything affecting the financial infrastructure like U.S. currency, credit card fraud, cyber fraud. So starting a secret service, I started as, as an undercover operative. That was my main function and traveled to many exotic places around the world to include South America, places like Colombia, Argentina, Paraguay, but also places like Europe and North America, Canada, and various countries in Western and Eastern Europe to mainly disrupt any kind of criminal activity related to different types of crimes that were targeting, again, the U.S. financial infrastructure. Wow. So when you first started, you were kind of undercover and then you moved your way through various locations and different focuses throughout your career. I mean, I'd imagine that it didn't feel like you worked for the same company in quotation marks over those 25 years because you were doing so many different things. Yes, correct. Correct. So yeah, you work under an undercover capacity, obviously, and you're infiltrating different criminal groups, learning their methodologies, trying to find out how they're doing things, their techniques, their tactics, and eventually disrupt the activity. So again, to any kind of impact they may have in the financial infrastructure of the U.S., especially the U.S. Treasury. But after after there a while, we go through different phases of your career. I eventually became an operations manager, managing it undercover ops in the field, mostly in South America due to my linguistic capabilities. After that, I was promoted into a manager level and a supervisor level, which I uh, eventually went back from Miami field office to Washington, D.C. And that's where I started getting into cyber intelligence. I was just thinking about the fact that cyber intelligence probably wasn't even a thing for the U.S. Secret Service 25, 30 years ago, but it became something that was necessity. And I kind of remember it a little bit just from being outside maybe 15 years ago or so is when I remember the Secret Service kind of starting to work on some financial cyber crimes, et cetera, just locally to me in the in Seattle area. but. So I'm sure that similar to a lot of us that are listening, you kind of learned about cyber crimes from when they started all the way through now. And so you've been able to adapt quite quickly because you're really learning about it as they progress and innovate on their own. Yes, correct. So the Secret Service has a jurisdiction when it comes to cyber crimes and cyber fraud, along with the FBI's concurrent jurisdiction that we, we share. And uh, the Secret Service tends to go after the cyber criminals mostly on the dark web for the most part, and some state-sponsored activity that is referred over to the Federal Bureau of Investigation for uh, depending what kind of what kind it is. As far as the Secret Service back in the 1990s, like you said, cyber crime was a very new thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody was getting used to the internet and email in general, right? <laughs> so the Secret Service was always pretty much in the forefront when it came to criminology in general, investigating crime. So they saw that a lot of uh, cyber criminals were actually congregating at different websites and forums and chat rooms. And we started, again, looking into that and trying to, again, gather intelligence and then either disrupt the activity or have them, have them apprehended either domestically or internationally through cyber criminals, especially they were targeting U.S. corporations, right? US- right. So I think you're being slightly humble because I was impressed by when I read your bio and I had known you for over a year before even knowing this, that you helped to found the U.S. Secret Service Cyber Intelligence Section. What was that like? What are the purviews and responsibilities of the department? And how did that come to be? Like, how did you decide to, I mean, was it out of a need? Because everyone was getting used to the internet and as were scammers and fraudsters and bad actors. 
Yes. No, what happened when it's actually founded back in 2002 is right after, you know, 9-11, of course, and the attacks, the Department of Homeland Security came to effect. The Secret Service actually came under the Department of Homeland Security after it was the, the U.S. Treasury for many years, since 1865. So we saw there was a need to coordinate intelligence within the U.S. government, specifically cyber intelligence, mm. because we saw different uh, bad actors Again, speaking and acting in a nefarious way in different forms and shops around the world in various languages. So we had in the Secret Service various field offices throughout the country and internationally as well, working these different cyber crime cases, uh, different things. And many times they had common actors that were actually using different nicknames, for instance. They would not use their real names, but they were the same people doing things. So we wanted to have a coordinated joint effort within our agency to again, go after these actors for attribution, find out who they were. And the majority actually were in Eastern Europe, and we get more into that in a little bit. Mm -hmm. But we we wanted to basically have a coordinated effort for this. So in doing so, I was approached by our assistant director, director at the time, Brian Stafford, to put together a, a section, a division within the Secret Service, this criminal investigative division, to actually gather and coordinate intelligence. So we started recruiting analysts within the Secret Service with different linguistic capabilities. Of course, they had to, uh, majority had to speak and read Cyrillic and read Russian, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And understand the Russian language because the majority of these Eastern European bloc countries were speaking in the Russian language, but other languages like versus Portuguese, Spanish, Arabic as well. And then also we put together also operatives, agents who were trained in cyber crime and in forensics, for instance, computer forensics and cell phone forensics. The Secret Service has a very robust computer forensics and cyber forensics capability. As a matter of fact, they train many local and state police with these capabilities to be able to analyze any kind of media once it's recovered from a cyber crime scene. So in doing so, we put all this together, I headed to the section, and we started working internationally with our partners, other intelligence agencies, law enforcement agencies throughout the world who were experiencing cyber crime as well. These cyber criminals who have no boundaries, and it was the wild, wild west, and it still kind of is the same thing today, but, but back then it was really, really crazy out there. But we saw that a lot of, of our foreign law enforcement partners had very similar issues that we did when it came to cybercrime and their financial institutions also were being impacted. So we, again, started collaborating with them, meeting them in their foreign countries, and formed the International Task Force, basically, of 33 countries, if I recall, 33 countries that were actually working with the Secret Service in combating proactively cybercrime globally. And again, it was all coordinated by the Cyber Intelligence Section in Washington, D.C., which I had. I'm so impressed. And like I said, I didn't know a lot of this when I just reached out to you. Hey, are you seeing this? Are you hearing that? But it's impressive. And as somebody who is a huge fan of collaboration on the e-commerce and fintech side, I always love hearing about other stories as far as other forms of collaboration like the International Task Force and building the cyber intelligence division. That's very impressive and quite the, quite the accomplishment. I know you didn't do it all on your own, but you were a very... Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean... 
other than a small oily fish in the herring family. Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Key part of it. Thank you. No, it's very yeah. nice. And yes, you're quite right. I mean, the men and women that are still there to this day, and it's expanded out dramatically, actually, mm-hmm. but they were very essential in putting this together. Again, we had some excellent agents, some excellent analysts, some administrative staff in our leadership within the Secret Service it was also very supportive of our efforts and very innovative in their in the, in the way they forethought. For instance, we, we actually had the first takedown of a international cyber criminal forum, which was a website dedicated to cyber crime. So the first ever intercept, basically in Title III, intercept wiretap of a website was conducted by the Secret Service, by the Cyber Intelligence Section and, and various other field offices that were working collaboratively. Again, to be disrupted and arrest and apprehend over 45 different cyber criminals throughout the world in a, in a con- concise and coordinated fashion simultaneously. Amazing. And I know there's been a few, well, several of those over the years as well, that one that I got to be a part of out of Seattle several years ago, others with, I know I'm going to be interviewing the former head of trust and safety for StubHub, and they definitely had a lot of great international coordinated takedowns with the Secret Service in part because they hired a former Secret Service agent who was able to help them navigate. And this was several years ago, but those types of things, well, certainly it could be argued could always be increased, really do have an impact in the criminal world because it's important for all of them to see that there can be repercussions and that there are in many cases. Yes. As a matter of fact, our partners were not only local law enforcement and international law enforcement, it was also the private sector. Hmm. Worked very closely with folks out by you out in Washington State, mm-hmm. Silicon Valley, many tech companies, e-commerce companies that were also being affected with cybercrime. And they were very essential. So again, it was a very collaborative effort. And the Secret Service to this day still has these task forces and groups that work not only with the private sector, but also academia. Again, to again, be proactive when it comes to cybercrime. 
And for anyone who's curious, those are the electronic crimes task force that you're talking yes. about, right? Yes. Yeah. And if you're not a member, please be a member. Yeah. There's one in each and every major metropolitan area throughout the United States. That'd be a good plug, but something that I plan to talk to my buddy about in a future episode as well. But I think it's a little known secret that these can be very powerful and are really good task forces to to work collaboratively with federal law enforcement, as well as other private sector companies as well. Yes. So you kind of hinted at it, but while working out of the D.C., the Washington, D.C. office, the other Washington, as we call it here in Washington state, you became the expert on Eastern European financial and cyber crimes for the Secret Service and also through this international task force. What did you learn about this part of the world and its participation in cyber crime? Yes. Well, my background in Again, what I was trained in and educated is mostly Eurasian malware development. And again, mostly for obviously Eastern Europe. There's also some, some good also Asian malware as well. But these are mostly non-state actors, meaning they're not working for the governments per se or the countries. These are very loose-knit cyber criminals who have an expertise and a real knack when it comes to cybercrime. In Eastern Europe in general, especially during the Soviet era, in the bloc, a lot of people would train when it came to computers and educate computer, computers in general. From a very young age, they were really adapted into learning about operating systems in general and, and just, just a very uh, different approach than we had in the U.S., right? So a lot of these cyber criminals that we were looking and hunting for were basically experts in their area. So you had basically the which today pretty much is still to this day very similar. You have the malware writers who actually write the malware. And these were highly educated individuals who may have computer science degrees or doctorates, master. many have many jobs during the day. Some were actually professors or, or taught at universities in Eastern Europe, or they worked at major corporations. But at night they were developing malware and selling it to the cyber criminals. And these cyber criminals were actually spamming and sending different spamming campaigns to various, obviously, email accounts to infect devices with the malware. And then once the device is infected with malware, these folks would either look at it if they were actually hackers and probe the networks to steal and exfiltrate data uh, and study the network many times for many months. And then once they were doing that, they were, again, stealing the information and then selling it through different shops and vendors online and eventually through end users who exploit the data. Again, one vicious circle with all these different threat actors. I mean, nowadays, you basically have them exploiting the networks and going after them through ransomware attacks. So back then, that didn't exist as much. But now, Q6, we see this on a daily basis. Different types of ransomware attacks occurring through, again, malware and deployment. And the malware is getting better and better. And the different variants are much, much more sophisticated nowadays. Wow. So I didn't realize that they trained, that their education system was so focused on computers and coding and all of that, which you're right, is very different than the U.S. and not a bad thing. Just it makes sense why they're so good at this. I, I think that a lot of people think that malware is something that is from yesteryear. You know, it's something that we heard a lot about 10, 15 years ago, obviously oh, phishing no. campaigns, et cetera. And I know. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit about what some of the malware, and I had Ellie do this before, but I just don't think it can be said enough. I find myself talking about 
malware being used to commit account takeovers and especially the more sophisticated account takeovers that enterprise e-commerce companies are seeing now quite often because of you guys. And I've been able to see it all in real time and it's crazy. But can you talk a little bit about what that malware looks like now and how it's wreaking havoc? Yes. Well, obviously, different types of malware, malware variants that are deployed, but they're deployed on you know, a daily basis. I would say many times every hour or two. It's very hard to keep track of, especially with the antivirus companies. It's very good to have antivirus, of course. I'm a big proponent of it, but they're always behind the curve when it comes to the different variants because you have to, have to actually get the signature of the malware and find it first to actually put in the antivirus. But the, the key the key to, to malware, I mean, the majority of the malware we're seeing, especially if it's not state-sponsored malware, meaning by these miscreants, cyber criminals who are very organized and loosely knit, it's mostly for credential grabbing mm-hmm. malware. So they're, they're, they're harvesting credentials, meaning they, they want to infect your devices, your phones, your computers. Again, through mostly phishing campaigns. Occasionally, you will see the websites that are, are being used as a honeypot when you go to these websites that don't affect your computer as well, especially the most nefarious ones, the ones on the darker side anyway. But but it's mostly through email campaigns and their objective is to steal your credentials, your login credentials for your online banking, your credentials for your e-commerce site. Because once they get in, they own your account, they own you basically, you own your computer, and they're recording everything that you're typing on their computer. And they want to access an account and any kind of personal information you have on there or any kind of payment information is going to be taken over by them through usually botnet, right? So this is all automated, by the way, right? So you're, the malware is reporting back through a botnet to a command and control server, a series of millions of computers that are infected with malware reporting to a command and control server that's actually being hosted and actually being owned by a threat actor. And that threat actor shares that information within his group or her group. I know or sells it on the dark web at different shops and forums. The, the key is to be, again, proactive about this and know what's being harvested and what credentials are out there. Not credentials that are old, that I already used. I'm talking about fresh credentials because, they're, again, they're being stolen on a daily basis by these different malware variants. So you want to know what's, what the latest variants are, what they're used for, and why they're being utilized for. Yeah. And something I've learned a lot from you guys on is that it's, they're not just harvesting the credentials as far as the username and password, like we would traditionally think. They're also harvesting a lot of information about the session data, the device, the browser language, every piece of it. And what's really cool about what you've helped create at Q6, and this isn't a plug, it's just, it's just facts, is that you sit in between that command and control center. And so you're grabbing or you're at least seeing which logins, right? So if hypothetically, and I really hope it's hypothetical, if my laptop was infected with that malware, every time I would go to a login site, whether it's my bank or any e-commerce site that that I log into, they are being sent all of the session data. And that's why so many e-commerce companies and fintechs and banks are starting, have started to see, well, this login looks like the real person. It's very, very close, often because they're using emulators such as Lincoln Sphere that is so good at being able to just emulate that session data. Yes, yes, you're right on, Parisian. And depending on the type of malware, it also has different modules and everything else that it actually will connect through virtual network computing, like you said, sometimes many times for the actual victim computer itself, right, right 
to the network of that e-commerce fortune. And there again, the malware stealing depends on the, on the variant very state. User maybe the password, that's standard, but again, the cookie sessions, the IPDs, a variety of different things to again, replicate that session, or if not use again, other tools like you mentioned, Lickosphere to, to try to replicate the session to full that e-commerce customer, that merchant into believing it's the actual true owner of that account. And again, we're seeing millions of accounts being harvested a day throughout the world, not only in the US, also in Europe, South America. But again, it's the, the purpose of these different malware variants is to again, collect information and then do account takeovers. Because it's very, it's very prosperous. This is a multi-billion dollar business when it comes to these threat actors. So again, spamming, that's your main method. That's a multi-million dollar business within itself. Mm. You have the account takeover business. And then you have, of course, ransomware, which is ever growing now, holding folks hostage for different types of cryptocurrencies once they own that computer and they encrypt it. So speaking of just the account takeover piece with credentials and, and all of that, I mean, I've been lucky to be able to help with a few introductions to you guys as far as you providing fintechs and banks and e-commerce companies with the specific credentials that have been sent to malware so that they can know about it ahead of time before it's monetized. And yes. I think that that's a really good layer on top of traditional fraud prevention technology. But certainly in the last few weeks, since Russian sanctions or since sanctions have been placed on Russia, since all that's going on in the world, it seems like a lot of U.S.-based companies especially, but some based in Europe as well, have seen their account takeovers just skyrocket, oftentimes to target digital currency, whether it's crypto or e-gift cards, anything that's kind of digital and untraceable that can be eventually routed back to them in those areas. I know that your teams also monitor a lot of the dark web and dark net and also just like Telegram and Discord and all of the groups wherever cyber criminals are congregating and having conversations. You, in addition to having SIGINT, which is like signal intelligence, you also have human intelligence. What are they seeing as far as account takeovers being such a popular method right now? Do you think it's connected to the financial and, and all other issues happening in Eastern Europe? Or is this just a coincidence? Yes. Well, from my experience, threat actors always use any kind of situation, whether it's a political situation or any situation that's occurring around the world as an opportunity. To expand, basically, and to be more aggressive toward their tactics and techniques. So we have seen in the deployment of spamming campaigns and malware campaigns throughout the United States and throughout Europe right now. These threat actors are from various places, including obviously the Russian Federation, but also the within the Ukraine itself. Believe it or not. So we have threat actors throughout all of Eastern Europe, the Baltics, that are increase their their attack campaigns to again use this, again, situation to try to target more people and, and be a little bit more aggressive toward their recoveries as far as credentials. One of the things that we have at, at Q6, you know, one thing I learned when I was at Secret Service is sur surround yourself with very intelligent and bright people. And at Q6, that's one of the things we did. When I came over after I retired from the Secret Service uh, and joined Ellie, we brought with us a lot of folks that are very intelligent. Our engineering team, for instance, were formerly with the National Security Agency, folks I used to work with very proactively, uh, or the Israeli Defense Forces as well. A lot of our analysts, they all speak multiple languages, but again, they have a lot of experience and they know what to look for and they know how to monitor the different forums and shops and uh, platforms. We call it all 
not only the dark web, we call it the digital underground. That's mm. our term internally in Q6 because again, there's so much out there and it communicates with so many forms and fashion. Many of these are private forms, encrypted forms that we've been at in, in many years that we're able to get to proactively seek out and again, intercept data and be able to let our customers know in a way in advance that an account has been stolen, that a credential has been stolen, and that it will be used against them eventually. The other thing, too, we've seen is an increase in attacks in third-party risk. They're affecting not only customers, but also vendors and employees of a, of a company, mm-hmm. meaning to try to penetrate their network. So usually most of these data breaches that occur, and I investigated so many without a secret service, was through a third-party vendor, the weak link that's touching their network, right? That's how they get in. And they usually target an employee. So again, malware has no disruption. It just reports back overseas, beacons back overseas to a command and control server. So again, by monitoring this malware, we can anytime see whether a vendor is infected, whether an employee of a, of a company is infected. And of course, the customers, that's usually the main target of these threat actors. But again, you got to keep up in mind, it's not only the, the customers, it's other people within that, that sector, within that, that venue that, that's in, that can be affected as well. Wow. Well, if anyone's writing as any notes as I have been while we're talking, they've, they're at least on page two. There's so much to go from there. Are there any specific types of third-party vendors that you're seeing them target or it doesn't seem to matter? They're more trying to target the employees of third-party vendors to then target the customers of those vendors. Yeah, no, any third-party vendor that's got a weak security posture. So it doesn't matter, you know, I mean. It doesn't matter if it's payments or fraud or if it's exactly. like an HVAC system or a Exactly. You know, a- anything that's connected to the network, it doesn't anything. have to be payments or anything. I, I mean, yeah, one, of, one of the models, yeah, one of the models we preach at Q6, we don't, we don't collect on anybody's network. We never touch anybody's network. We do, the thing we find is external and then we just pass it along in a secure fashion through usually a secure server to our customers. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to touch nobody's network because again, that may oh, make us maybe a target. You never know, right? So we, we don't want to, we don't want that, nor do we ever want that. We have very secure processes in place internally and we do we deal with this on a daily basis. But there's a reason why Microsoft has patched Tuesday, right? Because every Tuesday they're patching new systems. So it's a, there's a constant cat and mouse game. And the patching of systems is so important. And unfortunately, it, there's so many patches out there, which is hard to keep up with. So network administrators have a real hard time, the IT people, a real hard time to keep up with patches. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes people vulnerable. And bad guys know this. Remember, these guys are very savvy, very tech savvy, have very good computer skills. And then many times we'll just scan networks and scan ports to see what's open, what's not patched correctly. And that's how they target vendors many times and they'll target employees many times because of that. And a lot of people working from home, especially before during COVID mm. and they weren't taking the proper security measures and weren't patching up their networks, right? We had, they didn't have those updates as well. And that's why these systems were unsecure and that's how they were targeting people. And remember when they send malware, they, they'll target everything in that system, including like you mentioned before, any kind of wallets or crypto wallets. Mm. So people have crypto wallets on their computers or phones that are not protected, right? They have to be very careful because the threat actors know that and that's easy money for them, right? It's very easy to penetrate a crypto wallet and then basically steal the data and basically transact and give another address and those funds will go to another wallet, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever, Litecoin. They like it all. They like it all. Yeah, they like it all because it could be spent anywhere, right? And 
have a side question about how you even keep your faith in humanity, but that's like a whole other conversation just because, you know, with everything you guys see, it's hard to do. That's a whole whole different podcast. Right, (laughs) exactly. I know. And that's also like something I think we all in this industry (laughs) try to battle with myself included. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mean we have to keep the good fight going and there's good guys and gals that are constantly fighting to combat cybercrime and be proactive about it. That's the key. Yeah. To be proactive about it, mm. not be reactive, not wait for the fraud to occur. Know what's in, know how they're targeting you, know if they're targeting you, and their methodology, their techniques, their tactics, their protocols. There's intelligence companies like us that provide that information and, and to be collaborating, be able to work with us, work with companies like yours to be proactive in knowing what's out there, not wait to, for it to occur. A hundred percent. I mean, the the old phrase of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure could not be more applicable to cyber crime and cyber fraud, especially from a financial perspective when you're looking at cyber fraud, but also from the cybersecurity perspective as well, because the within private sector companies, oftentimes cybersecurity and cyber fraud don't really work together. And that just shouldn't be the case because they're trying to access your networks to monetize your information in multiple ways, not just through your customers and through their payment methods, but also through getting access to your company through employees and spam emails and just all, it's just multi-layered and it's so important. I, I couldn't agree more that it's so important to be proactive and know how they're targeting you so that you can try to protect the company versus trying to be reactive. Yes. And the constant education, not only of yourself, like I daily, I'm reading blogs yeah. and learning new things every single day, but also every, everybody at the company, but every, every company out there should do the same with their employees, educate them, train them, know what's out there. And again, and intelligence, I think is a key part of that to know what is going on behind the scenes, mm-hmm. what you do not have access to, to educate yourself on cyber crime in general. Yeah, I very distinctly remember yelling out of my office one time when somebody said, oh, I got an email from that. And it just sounded so much like spam. And I just remember saying, no, clicky the linky, like don't click the link. It just felt like that was my, that was my like constant yelling out. But I mean, I also tried to educate them as well, but sometimes it was just in the moment, like don't do it. (laughs) So in your experience, kind of just going back a little bit to Russia, what's the Russian government's role or involvement in cyber crimes that originate in their country specifically? Are attacks often state-sponsored or sanctioned, or is it more like a don't-ask-don't-tell arrangement as long as the bad actors don't target their own country? Is it Does it vary based on various factors? Yeah, it varies obviously in the political climate and what's going on, current trends. For the most part, when it came to the Russian Federation, I went there many times, interacted with them many times. Professionally, there were Many times very cooperative, actually, with, with the U.S. when it came to be proactive against different threat acts. But the, it usually took convincing meaning and it had to impact them as well. So not only would a, a local U.S. company and financial institution was affected by the threat actor who happened to be living in the Russian Federation, but also Russian companies, Russian so part of their infrastructure. So usually when you're able to prove that or show that to them, they were very cooperative when it came to that, to working together for the most part. But the, the obviously all, all, all governments throughout the world have a very, especially the major nations throughout the world, have a very robust cyber capability. Mostly when it comes to nation states, they will target usually infrastructure of that country. For the most part, if it's a nation state sponsored, very rarely they will go after other things. But we have seen other countries or 
should I say, employees of governments moonlighting, you know, after they're done working, going after things for financial gain. So we do see that occasionally. So that's one thing. Then we see other countries, like for instance, China, going after intellectual property, I mean, 24-7. So that's that's our main objective, right? IP theft. We used to see that very, very proactively. And as well as also defense contractors and military industry, DOD contractors and that sort of thing. So, you know, it depends on their objective. It depends which country it is to go after different things. Like, for instance, North Korea, this is public. They went after different cryptocurrency exchanges and wallets recently, last couple of years, for financial gain. So these were, many of these were state-sponsored events. So, and that was kind of a little bit different, but yep, that was something that the North Korean government. So it all depends. It depends on the country. It depends on the current environment and political climate and what's happening. But state-sponsored events, if a government is going to be going after your computer or your company computer, they're going to get in, Grace. I'll mm. tell you right now. It's, uh, I try to stay off the radar. <laughs> yeah, they're going, to, they're going to get in. They have very good tools, as Uncle Sam, right, to go after a lot of these folks proactively. So, but again, the state sponsored events are usually directed at other government agencies for the most part. Right. So then if... For Russian hackers and and people are just looking and the organized crime within Eastern Europe in general, within those borders as well as without, but especially within the Russian Federation, I think there's this understanding or at least this thought around here that they probably at least have permission of some sort, right? So there's probably, or maybe not permission, but the government in other areas seem to have a lot more knowledge about what people are doing. And they may understand that, okay, these people are committing reshipping fraud in the U.S. or malware over here or credential ATOs over there. But as long as they don't target our country, we don't really care. Is that kind of the perception of it? Or do they really not No, I mean, you did mention that when you'd bring it to their attention back when you were with the U.S. Secret Service, oftentimes they cooperate. But it it seems like if the government was against it, they would put them all in jail. Right. Or I don't know. Maybe I I don't know this as well as as you do. So, again, it depends. Again, if if it's affecting them directly, their country Mm -hmm. directly, like financial systems directly or anything. Yes. Right. Immediately. So that's what they really care about. That's their number one priority. Now. If it's affecting a different country or outside the country, you know, they got to prioritize everything. So that's why they would not prioritize mm-hmm. that, that type of crime. Well, many countries do the same thing. Obviously, they're going to take care of their own backyard first, right? Now, what we have seen in many countries in Eastern Europe, to include the Russian Federation, is people are apprehended that are actually Russian nationals. They're not going to extradite a Russian national to the U.S., right? That's very, mm-hmm. no, that's not going to happen, nor do we to the, to the Russian Federation, right? But they will actually many times employ that individual hmm. as, on behalf of the government. So they get arrested and then they get employed. Many countries do the same thing. Right? Yeah. Now, now they become basically an employee and a, or informant of that, that government. Uh, they'll use it as a confidential source to gain access to certain things, especially if they have a special knowledge set that they are lacking. Yeah. At first I was thinking, oh, that will force the... At first, I was kind of thinking negatively about that, but then I know of some very specific examples, as as do you, and I'm sure you have a lot more, where here in the U.S. and in Europe and with Interpol and, and other areas will do the same thing. I mean, there's kind of that old adage to catch a thief, you need to think like one, and sometimes you need to hire one as well. On yes, that. well, that's common practice. Right, and sources exactly. Are- 
everybody utilizes or you have to have because again it's always good to have someone who has access to something you do not have already or established within right. the criminal community for instance or again has a skill set already found that vulnerability that would take you a while to find right so you always use that yep but some countries are going to do that to try to catch more criminals. Others may deploy them to help them commit more state-sponsored acts. Who who knows, right? But they're it depends. Yes, yeah. Right. But it it can be in either either way as a offense or defense, so to yes, speak. Exactly. Exactly. You're right on. So just kind of to start wrapping it up, which is so hard to do, but wanting to try to keep it focusing. What do you think that as everything is heating up and continues to heat up in in this part of the world. What can people working for private sector companies, banks, fintechs, et cetera, expect or be on the lookout for as there becomes more of a need for monetary gain in, in these areas or just in general? What I mean, we've talked about account takeovers and malware and ransomware, but what are what are some things that my listeners can be on the lookout for proactively or put into best practices within their organizations? Well, the key, you know, like I said, we're really hearing some chatter and cyber criminals who are going to be exploiting the situation, the current situation with the war in the Ukraine to their benefit, meaning they're going to take advantage of that, take advantage of people in general and attack more and more Western companies just to try to exfiltrate data, steal information. All this mostly for financial gain at this time, which we've seen. Right. Even some of the some of the ransomware groups, for instance, we've seen them speaking about increasing their activities this way. A lot of them will not target their own backyard, of course, right? Because that's pretty common practice. Mm-hmm. But they need to be an alert. You know, everybody in these different companies needs to make sure that their networks are secure, protected, everything's patched, updated. But the key, like I mentioned before, is having the cyber intelligence. Having information, educating yourself, know if you're being targeted by a group that's already being monitored, by the way. Know, have that information and then know exactly how they're going to come at you so you can mitigate the situation and not be a, a victim, right? The key is to be, you know, to be constantly moving, constantly being on the offensive, right? Not waiting for things to happen. If, you, if a cyber criminal has your compromised accounts or has access to your network, you should know about it as soon as possible. You should be aware of that to take to put things in place to protect yourself, mm-hmm. right? To reduce that fraud, get the fraud. I mean, nobody's got the silver bullet, Maurice, I have to say, but it's good to have very good tools and multiple tools in your tool chest to be, again, educated with what's happening out there. And everything, cybercrime is ever evolving. They're, they're always coming up with new methods, new method, you know, new techniques to try to take advantage of the U.S. consumer and U.S. companies in general. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to give you one more opportunity, just if there's anything else, slight story you have from your past, something to end it on rather than dark and dreary. Is there anything else that you would add for the listeners or just in general that you think would be of interest? Yes. Well, what I want to say is that not only the U.S. Secret Service, but all the you know federal agencies in the U.S. government, they have some very unique capabilities. You're always thinking about the private sector. Mm. You're always want to work with the private sector. There's been a lot of recent developments with different departments, like Department of Homeland Security, for instance, and there the CISA alerts, for instance, that they put out regarding different vulnerabilities that are going on. So they've been very proactive with their approach in communicating with the private sector. So 
there's a lot of people out there working hard on a daily basis to again disrupt the activity of occurring, prevent as much as possible. And folks like you and me that are doing this on a daily basis, I think is important for communication. You know, this podcast is a great example of being able to communicate some of the things that I'm seeing firsthand. I'm on the front lines like you are, seeing things on a daily basis and be able again to know and educate yourself on what's going on in the real world before again you become a victim. Absolutely. And on that note, as far as educating and everything, I know you guys put out some great blogs and webinars that I think are little known secret or little known just treasure chest of information. And I often am looking at those and and often seeing like, oh, okay, yep, that's exactly what I've been hearing about from the merchants over here. And you're seeing it over there in that way, whether it's about OTP bots or or all types of things. So Again, I just want to really thank you for your time and expertise, and I will include your contact details or whatever you want to put in the show notes, whether it's your LinkedIn profile or others, so that people can contact you and learn more about yourself and or Q6 and just this in general, and really appreciate you again, taking time to share your experience and expertise. Thank you, Reese. I appreciate the opportunity as well, and I'm very easy to reach. You just, you know, reach me via email usually when just get, get a hold of me. So again, appreciate your time. And I look forward to, you know, this being released. Thank you. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.